Hello, we're back. Welcome to the second ever post-inaugural episode of the Future Vision Podcast. Future Vision Podcast. Oh my God. So Janth, I, I have a theory about what? this. What? I think the second part of any series is the most important. Yeah. Because like, you know, with the first you're introducing whatever that series is and like people will have some kind of perception of it afterwards. Yeah. But so the second that you decide whether or not you're going to either continue a pattern or yeah. break that pattern. Because if someone sees something twice in a row, they've now established a vector. Like there's a pattern in their head. Yeah. But if you change it, if you make it better or worse, then you're breaking the cycle. So like, I mean, just look like so like Spider-Man and Spider-Man Two. Spider-Man Two. Well, those are both good movies. Yeah, exactly. Say. But uh, okay. So I I would say breaking it like Zelda versus Zelda Two, Adventure of Link, it goes to a side scroller. What the hell? Mario Two, they take like an entirely different game and reskin it. Crazy. And what we're doing now, we got two separate mics. We've got beers. We, we are redefining this podcast. The production value has gone up like $140 already, episode two. Cool. So I hope all you people listening out there are, are enjoying that. The two people listening in, you can, <laughs> you can hear me now. I think that's just us, right? Ooh, yeah, that's just us. Yeah, that, that's a little exercise in vanity, hearing myself yeah. better. Yeah. All right, so episode two, we are going to switch gears from talking about an event. Well, still an event, but talking about a technology and kind of going over the history of that and where we think it's headed. Virtual reality. Virtual and augmented reality. So, VAR and R. VAR, VR. Yeah, I don't know, actually. Yeah. I've never heard. There's a reason I've never heard that because it sounds really because, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know a fair amount of technology. I don't need to explain the definitions of these two things to you. But I think one thing just to cover really quick is the idea that the fundamental technology that goes into virtual and augmented reality isn't, you know, isn't all that sophisticated in the sense that it's existed for quite a long time. So if you're looking back to really the 1960s is the first instance where we saw this kind of technology. Um, one of the first things that was using was the Sensorama in 1962, and this was something that they were using at like amusement parks and like arcade machines where it was a multi-sensory experience and it was the first time where people were really trying to do like not a fully 360 but a wide field of view immersive experience with the eyes as well as sound and other things um i think if people were thinking of like the first time that vr kind of touched the mainstream in a consumer sense i think a lot of people would think of the virtual boy by nintendo and that came yeah. out back in 1997 i think so so Virtual Boy is important because it was a monumental failure. Yep. Um, and I think in the same it's way It's still that, a meme. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a real meme. And I think of the same way that um, E.T., also a meme, spelled the death of games for a little bit. I think the failure of the Virtual Boy on a consumer level is kind of what kind of killed off VR for a little bit in the consumer spectrum. Yep. Um, and it's funny because, you know, Nintendo and Sega were always fighting back then. And Sega was actually working on their own VR system. I think back in 1991... They first announced it just to, um, like, the press. Um, but that didn't come to fruition, either because the technology wasn't there or they decided that people weren't interested at the time. Yep. So then fast-forwarding, basically after the Virtual Boy in 1997, you know, there, there's still a lot of stuff happening either in, you know, the private sector, you know, a lot of either research institutions or the military. There, there were a lot of instances of VR being used either for simulations, training, parachute training, flight simulations, like, things where it would clearly make sense and you wouldn't need all that sophisticated technology, as long as, you know, it, it, it's a relatively uh, stationary experience that you're doing. But really, it wasn't until 2010, so 13 years later, where VR kind of jumped back into the mainstream in, in some sense, because Palmer Lucky, a classic kind of 
building technology out of your garage, he was the first person who, maybe not the first person, but the one who popularized the idea that the technology had finally reached a point where we could do consumer level VR, I would say. Yeah. He was able to build a good enough prototype that could be mass produced and could be shared with any number of developers and consumers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, through that prototype, he was able to attract a lot of really, really great minds, either from id Software and, you know, some some of the... Some of the originators of, of PC gaming were getting interested in this, and that's really how Oculus came to be originally. So fast forwarding just two years or three years, we had um, the DK1, which was actually launched on Kickstarter for the first time in August 1st of 2012. So this was kind of the first time that the public outside of people who were you know working internally realized that VR was back on the menu and like it, it, it was coming in a, in a faster way. So the DK1 was actually first launched March 29th of 2013. Um, and I haven't actually used a DK1. I've used a DK2 when I was doing some development in college. But I mean, what I what I could tell from the DK2 is that in, in this first iteration, the resolution was a huge, huge problem. So I mean, I guess we, we should go over what are the fundamental parts of what makes VR a good experience. Mm -hmm. Obviously, one of those things is you need either one very, very wide display screen, or you need two screens of relatively high resolutions because these are basically being placed a couple of inches from your eyes and you're actually using lenses to basically give it a 3D effect when you're looking at it. So with those first couple of iterations, you know, these were, you know, 640 or 1280 by 800 um, resolutions on these screens, which sounds like a relatively good screen. I mean, we're talking 10 years ago, a monitor of that resolution isn't isn't that unseemly. But I mean, it's it's absolutely impossible to read text on a display like that when you're looking at it. Yeah, and I think I think you have to look at it this way. Um, a, a lot of monitors, the actual distance from your eyes is much farther than something like an Oculus where it's very, very close to your eyes. So it, it does make a huge difference. And in addition, in addition to that, you also have to look at the refresh rate on something like exactly. this as well. Yeah. Uh, if, some, if the refresh rate is a lot slower, it's not really that big of a deal when you're looking at a monitor or television or even your phone for that matter because it's farther away from you. And you don't need the experience to appear um, as lifelike as you need to on a VR headset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd say um, the refresh rate that we're seeing now with kind of proprietary like main VR headsets is about 90 hertz. Um, and it's a different th threshold for everyone. But if you drop under 60 hertz, 70 hertz, a lot of people experience nausea. Um, once there's really any displacement between your own body motion and what's happening on screen... From a biological standpoint, because you know your eyes are being tricked into thinking this is reality. So if your movements are not being perfectly matched by what's happening in front of you, it can be you know very disorienting and nauseating. So yeah. So the second thing we got resolution, then we have refresh rate, and then I think the third most important thing is, or the the other really important thing is tracking. Like I was saying, that one to one tracking is a very important thing. Yeah. Um. So when we talk about the DK one, DK two, and the original Oculus Rift, so just fast forwarding, um, DK two came out in twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen. And then the Oculus Rift was launched in 2016, so a couple of years later. And this was launched alongside, basically within the same year, with the HTC Vive and the PSVR system, which was originally called Morpheus. And we'll do a little compare and contrast of those systems. Um, but one thing that I think really set the Oculus Rift behind, despite having the backing of Facebook when it came out, having, I would say, better build quality, having a better presentation, and being the first out of the gate, it came out in March whereas the HTC Vive came out in April, mm -hmm. and then PSVR came out in October, mm -hmm. um, was the fact that when it first came out, it did not have full room scale tracking, full positional tracking of the body, which is an incredibly important thing, I think, in VR. Mm -hmm. So when 
when the Oculus Rift first came out, it was the headset, which had its full personal tracking, and you had an Xbox One controller to do all of the actual control. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that Oculus had a lot of really, really great proprietary like studio work, they were making their own games exclusively for the system, and that was a great thing. They were originally developed in the mindset that you are, you know, you were looking through a VR headset, but the way in which you're interacting with the world and the way you're controlling is more like a traditional game. So Lucky's Tale and Cronus were two of the first games that came out, and they were fundamentally very basic games, but it gave you kind of the freedom of looking around the environment in a 3D virtual reality space. Mm -hmm. So then going from that to the HTC Vive, and that's what I got. I got my Vive and I think probably about June of 2016, so pretty early on. I was I was pretty early adopter on that. Um, what ultimately led the Vive to kind of have the most momentum coming into the play was one, that it had full positional tracking. I think that's an incredibly, incredibly important thing. Yeah. Um, and really quickly, I think... One thing that's important to touch on is the way that the tracking systems in the Oculus Rift and the Vive are actually inverted in the sense that with the Oculus Rift, you actually have a camera that's looking for basically, you know, anchor points on your um, on your controllers and on your headset itself. And it's using those to do your positional tracking. Whereas with the HTC, HTC Vive, the trackers are actually on the headset itself. It's looking for beacons that are set up within your room, and that's how it's actually doing its tracking. Mm-hmm. And people have found over time that the... Um, what I would, what I'd say, the lighthouse effect, the the way that Valve is doing it, has been a lot better in the sense that if you want to get a full room scale experience with the Oculus Rift, not only when you get your you know uh, motion tracking controllers do you get a second camera, but you actually need a third if you want to have really no problems with a full room scale experience. Whereas with the Vive, you buy it, you get your two lighthouses, and out of the box it's pretty so, much seamless. So cost wise, how would that be different? So cost-wise, I, I don't know what the manufacturing costs of them are. Yeah. Um, but coming out of the gate, um, the Oculus Rift was six hundred bucks for the headset and the controller. Yeah. And then an extra two hundred when you got the two the two more um, motion tracking controllers and the second camera. Whereas the HTC Vive was eight hundred right out of the gate. So they're for the technology you're getting and for getting the full room scale experience, they're the exact same price. Okay. Yeah. And then going on to the PSVR. So the PSVR is really notable in that it's. In this first generation, probably the most promising when it comes to getting a high adoption rate of people getting into these technologies. Mm-hmm. I should note that with the HTC Vive and with the um, Oculus Rift, none of, none of this stuff is happening internally. All of the processing is happening on your computer, and you would need to build a PC that costs at least $800 to even get into it, um, which you know obviously will set a lot of people back. I, I, and going off of that, there's been a big debate as to... Do these do these VR headsets function as independent systems, proprietary systems, or are they only displays? And one thing that really kicked up dirt at the beginning is a lot of people were angry about Oculus having what I would call a walled garden approach, in which they had their own proprietary software, um, and they were you know resistant towards having a more open source way. Whereas Steam, Valve, who actually um, did all of the R and D for the HTC Vive, it was kind of a partnership between HTC doing the actual manufacturing, and then Valve was doing the initial R and D from back into you know, 2012, 2013, when they first worked on it. But they have created SteamVR, which is kind of an open marketplace for basically any kind of open VR experience. People call them OSVR. Like a lot of Razors gotten into it, a lot of other people. So we have kind of two fundamentally different business plans when we look at this stuff. Well, they're a little bit more similar than you think. I think Mm -hmm. the problem that you're looking at is that Valve, who, who already makes a lot of video games and has Steam, which is a probably the biggest video game marketplace on the planet um, has has these existing network effects that they can really tap into. So any PC gamer already uses Steam to probably buy their video games. 
and they're already using that system and they're okay with using any sort of console that's compatible with that marketplace or system. Mm -hmm. Oculus doesn't have that. Oculus has to build their own network effects to be able to bring customers and keep them into buying their own products. Really quickly, how would you define network effects? Because I feel like this is an important business thing that we'll be getting into more in the future. Yeah, so um, networks are really, really important in business in general. So you can define a, uh, a network either kind of like a social network like Facebook or um, networks um, with sort of uh, on like more product-based networks, like right, like Apple has a product-based so network. So having a pre-existing ecosystem that people are familiar with, so that when you introduce something new into it, it's more readily adopted because it feels like it's part of that network. Not necessarily. It's not necessarily just by device or just by personal experience in manufacture. So, for example, someone who is in the Apple ecosystem might be uh, more permissible into or might want to buy AirPods more because they know that it's compatible with all their products. Mm -hmm. But it can also be social network effects. So, for example, uh, you might use a social network because all of your friends use that same social network, not necessarily Mm -hmm. because you want to personally use it. So it it goes just it goes beyond your experiences and it actually goes towards what your friends personally use, mm-hmm. and that's the point uh, that I was trying to make with Steam here because uh, not only uh, do you personally play video games with Steam, but your friends could personally play video games with Steam as well. Yeah. So Steam so for people who to... don't play PC games, Steam is pretty much a complete monopoly when it comes to the PC gaming space. So that sets Valve up in a fantastic position for a PC centric gaming system because. Everyone is basically within their network already. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's actually to Valve's benefit if every VR manufacturer starts publishing games and starts putting their headsets into Valve's ecosystem. Because that means that at the end of the day, everyone is still coming to Valve. But this same notion is not necessarily true with Oculus. Mm-hmm. If Oculus wants everyone to come to Oculus, they need to build in network effects to ensure that that is the only VR headset that they're buying. Because they can't really differentiate in the market solely based on hardware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think another thing that was important for Oculus and something that in some way set it forward and in some way set it back was it being purchased by Facebook mm-hmm. a couple of years prior to the Rift coming out. Yeah. The way I see it is, well, you know, obviously while being purchased by Facebook gives it a ton of backing when it comes to the R&D department, they can, you know, put more money into this even though it's not going to be initially profitable. It's, you know, a long-term gain for them. The problematic thing when it comes to Facebook purchasing it is that when you look at like what kind of people are going to be buying one of these headsets, these are early adopters who are very much into the PC space. Generally not the kind of people who are fans of Facebook, mm-hmm. the impression I would get. Yeah. Generally people who are very pessimistic or speculative about, you know, or, or more aware of what could possibly be happening when it comes to data mining, when it comes to their personal information being set out. It's generally people who are not as enthusiastic about that kind of thing. I mean, I was very much into the like Reddit communities of r slash Rift and r slash um, Vive when, when these were coming out. And in general, there was a very, very negative stance when it came to them being purchased by Facebook. Mm-hmm. I agree with you and I disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I agree with you in the sense that, yes, the early adopter community uh, who was initially looking at these devices was very apprehensive of Facebook buying uh, Oculus. But I think that it actually sets Oculus up in a really good position to succeed. I think that Facebook really, really wanted to buy Oculus because of their experiences uh, in the mobile space. So uh, Facebook was late to mobile. And because of that, they really realized that um, 
they couldn't dominate that marketplace. They did not have ownership of the market like uh, iOS or Apple and Google did because Apple and Google uh, respectively uh, own iOS and Android Mm -hmm. in the sense that Facebook has to play by the terms of Google and Apple now rather than the other way around. If Apple decides to change some uh, privacy policy, Facebook has to abide by it. They have no other choice. Um, And Facebook started to try to get past this uh, a, a little bit early on, around 2011, 2012, they started partnering with device manufacturers such, such as HTC to start creating uh, headsets. They actually created uh, an HTC phone called, uh, I think it was called like the HTC First or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it ran a custom version of Android uh, with a bunch of Facebook add-ons and it flopped completely. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think this is sort of Facebook's way to try to make up for that mistake. Mm-hmm. They believe Try to that get into a hardware sector on top of it as opposed to being late. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's another really important thing. Facebook, this is one of the first times that they've acquired a company that is focused on hardware manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it just speaks to Mark Zuckerberg's enthusiasm when it comes to technology. I mean, he's been giving a lot of keynote addresses talking about how VR is going to fundamentally change Facebook. I mean, he, he really does believe that you know, having a more present experience for someone when you're looking at them in a 3D environment through virtual reality, he really thinks that's going to be the future of Facebook in a lot of ways. I know he recently referenced, he thinks 1 billion people are going to be in VR in the future, which is, I mean, a very, very lofty assumption. So mm-hmm. we'll see. And if they're online and their their way of interacting socially through VR is through Facebook, then they've won. Yeah. That's a huge step for we'll them. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, just talking numbers really quick. Um, what I was saying with that initial thing where kind of the initial adopters, the people who are willing to pay $800 for a headset and who have the PCs, a lot more of them at the very beginning were were going Vive. So I think within the first year, there's no official stats on these because I think overall, neither of them sold stellar so far. And I think people are apprehensive of kind of releasing statistics. Mm-hmm. But people assume that it's about 250,000 Rifts were sold in 2016, whereas about 400,000 Vives were sold. And I'd say that Vive kind of Kept, kept that momentum at least for the first half of 2017. But what really happened pretty quickly were these massive price drops. What happened with um, Oculus Rift is they went from $600 for the headset to out of nowhere, they were selling the headset with the controllers, normally $800 for $400. Mm-hmm. And I remember this happened in like June. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, this is a limited time, like special deal. And then it never went away. And people were like, what's, what's going on? And then I think in October is when they officially were like, yeah, this is the price. It's four hundred dollars. So mm-hmm. the question is, are they operating at a loss at that point, or were they really just making that much of a profit margin off these, you know, early adopters? Because they knew these are the people who are going to buy it regardless of the price. Like they really just want the technology. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the nice things about being funded by Facebook. They can afford to uh, market and operate at a loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that's problematic for HTC right now. I mean, they've they've fallen back a lot in the phone market. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's speculation about HTC, you know, not having a very bright future when it comes to the HTC Vive as well. Uh, a lot of people are saying, I, I, don't, I don't know what the ownership of the platform is. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Valve basically could find another manufacturer to, like, go on with or set up their own internal manufacturing for headsets in the future. I'm not sure exactly where that's going to go. But I would say that, I mean, Valve is very clearly 100% in. So it's going to be interesting to see if they basically cut off on their own and just make their own headset 100% in-house. That'll be interesting to see. Um, And then really quick, just back to PlayStation. Um, 
the big reason that this was the most promising kind of early adopter first high-level VR headset was it's compatible with the PS4. Um, and this is also around when the PS4 Pro was coming out. So this is a PS4 that plays the same games, but with, you know, a better processor. Um, and a lot of people speculated a big reason the PS4 Pro was coming out is so that people could play VR games without any risk of latency, you know, any frame rate drops, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest problem with the PSVR, for me at least, is that it also does not have full room scale tracking. It has positional tracking on the headset, but you can't freely walk around the room the same way that you do with the HTC Vive and now with the Oculus Rift. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, the specs are a little lower. It has a slightly lower field of view, a slightly lower resolution, but they're all relatively, I mean, none of them are perfect yet. The screen, the screen door effect that people talk about, which is really when you can basically see the lines between pixels when it's coming through the lens, is still very evident with all of these headsets. But I mean, just speaking to success, the PSVR sold projected about 800,000 units in 2016. So it was by far the leader. And I think now people are saying it's probably sold well over 2 million units. So that's, that's, awesome. that's actually really promising. That's really good. I mean, that's that's the attach rate. The PlayStation 4 has sold, I mean, it's, it's a huge system. It's sold maybe 60 million units at this point. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked that, but even then, I mean, sure, that's not a stellar attach rate, but when it's another $400 for the headset, well, now actually the headset's a lot cheaper. Now you can get the headset alone for maybe $200 on a special deal, $350 for the headset, the controllers, and a game. But even then, I mean, that shows a fair amount of enthusiasm. And then another important thing is Sony is another place that has a lot of proprietary, you know, in-house studios that have focused on making good VR games. And mm-hmm. I think that's really pushing them forward. Yeah, uh, I've heard some people really like the Resident Evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Resident Evil 7 is still not available for Vive and VR, and I've been waiting for that forever. Like, that's that's the thing, is, like, Valve has made a great ecosystem. There's over a 1,000 games available, but they're almost all developed by small groups of people. And what I found with VR, like, VR is limited in scope in the way that locomotion is not the same as a normal game. You can't just walk around with a control stick, because if there's not basically, you know, parity between your real movements and what you're seeing on screen, you can easily get nauseous. So some games have had kind of free locomotion where you use a joystick or a touchpad to move, but it's not that common. And I think that shows that it's okay that a lot of VR games have been smaller scale. And it actually, it's really cool because it's opened a lot of smaller studios to becoming, you know, rock stars in in the industry because there's not that many games coming out. There aren't really AAA games until... Fallout 4 and then Skyrim came out with VR ports. So a lot of smaller studios, I mean, single people have have sold hundreds of thousands of copies of games. Mm-hmm. So it's really a frontier. I think the first frontier in indie gaming in a long time. You know, when phones came out, people thought that was going to be a big thing. Didn't really turn out that way. Indie gaming blew up in like 2008, 2009. But like, this is a really exciting time if you're an indie developer looking for, you know, you, you don't know if you're going to sell a lot, but basically there's not that much quality stuff out there. And if you really put the time in, you have at least some chance, if you get lucky, of making a hit that a lot of people play. And that's really cool. Yeah. There's a market and there's an opportunity. Sick, dude. Yeah. All right. So I think we've kind of covered kind of the current state of VR. Really quickly also, that's the top tier of VR. And then we have kind of the accessible tier, which is basically taking the internal processor of a phone and the display of a phone and then converting that to a VR headset. And one thing to note here is that a lot of these higher-end VR headsets, mm-hmm. that they, they do very close to the same thing. Oculus relies on Samsung's phone uh, OLED displays. Mm-hmm. They, they actually use um, the same displays as what's in like the Galaxy devices. And Which is top of the line for phones. Yeah, exactly. So 
even though it's a little bit lower tier, the actual display and experience is actually very close to top tier. It's the processing power that's the big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I guess some of the, I mean, Google really came up with the cardboard, which is probably the way that some people listening might have seen it because cardboard has sold, I think they've estimated over 10 million shipped mm -hmm. worldwide. So that's a way a lot of people are getting accessible, you know, seeing VR for the first time. Because a, a lot of people have the preconception that VR is like taping a screen up to your face. Yeah. Where, I mean, you need well, those I mean, lenses to get a fully 3D effect. Yeah. Where you're saying, I mean... You well, you're, you're literally... I mean, with cardboard, you're you're doing the same thing. Yeah, but it's got lenses. You're taping a screen to your face. It's cooler than that. All right. If you haven't used VR and you're listening, you should... It's you should, cool. You should find it. Go to your local Microsoft store and try out a, a Vive or what... I mean, they probably have... They're probably using, like, the Dell visor or something now, but they're awesome. Great well, stuff. Last time with the Tysons, they had both... The advisors and yeah in the Microsoft Store and the Vive nice yeah so Microsoft always has kind of a Vive demo which is really really cool they do but I mean that okay that speaks when we're talking about business potential that's something we need to go into is it's really really difficult to market VR because you can't you can't get a proper understanding of how it's experienced unless you use it um, and if you want to demo in a public store space clearly yeah. people are very apprehensive to put on a headset and look like an idiot in front of a lot of people people walking by in a mall. I mean, it also just um, literally takes up a lot of space. Exactly. Setting up a demo area is a very expensive use of your your real real estate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, every, every single person I've demoed my Vive to maybe a dozen people at this point, and they all love it, but I don't think I've converted anyone to wanting one themselves. It's a good party trick. Yeah, I mean, and there's, there's, there's just a stigma to how do you properly market it. You know, you see these great headshots of people wearing VR headsets, and it looks incredibly dopey. Like, how do you properly communicate how incredible that is it's it's really really hard to do it's really hard to convince people that this isn't a fad the same way 3d tvs are or something like that and it really is you know it's it's it's, it's a really big problem right now yeah and i think this is where augmented reality comes into play i think that augmented reality is definitely an easier sell and an easier way to get someone into these these same sorts of ecosystems and help with with uh get people involved exactly yeah, so before we jump into AR, which I think in a lot of ways has more interesting future potential, mm -hmm. um, let's just talk about kind of the future of VR, what we're going to see in the next generation of headsets, and what do we ultimately see as the potential there. Um, so when we're looking at the future, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, um, not announced, but the price of the Vive Pro was announced. Um, so the Vive Pro is basically an identical headset, except it has a higher resolution screen, it has the same lenses, it has a more comfortable fit, like a better headband, um, internal microphones, but overall it's not it's not a Gen 2. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that a lot of people were annoyed with going in. It, it You know, it's a 60% resolution bump, but it's not a proper second generation. And they're selling it for $800 for just the headset, whereas you can now get a Vive for 500 and people are, you know, incredibly angry. The vast majority of people who were buying into Vive are now kind of looking in other areas. So one of the biggest other areas is Pimax, which is a Chinese manufacturer who... I don't know when it started, but, oh, September 19th, 2017 is when they started their Kickstarter for the Pimax 8K. So this is, they're marketing this as an 8K headset, which it really isn't. It's two 4K screens, and they're saying since they're horizontally aligned, it's 8K. It's kind One of... Plus four is eight. Yeah, it's marketing bullshit. The math adds up. But, you know, when it, when it first came out, the first iteration, I know people who were testing it weren't that enthusiastic, but it seems like people are, I think they're on their third iteration of the technology showing it to people now. And I mean, what this offers is, you know, a huge increase in resolution, 
we're talking 200 degree field of view versus like 110 for the Vive. So the goggle effect that you would get on a current VR headset is completely different. Um, and that's a really transformative thing. But I would say the other thing that we really need to address in the future, if we want these headsets to blow up, is the wire, that connection. Because while it's, once you get used to it, it's not that much of a hindrance, you know, walking around. It, if, if you want like a general population VR headset, it needs to be wireless at this point. It's just an expect, it's a universal expectation among anyone who uses consumer technology now for everything to be wireless. It's just how it is. You know? Yeah, and I, I mean, like, even on top of, I think, just an expectation, there's actually a real physical problem. Uh, there have been plenty of times where I've shown VR to people, or if you're, essentially, if you're in a room where someone is using VR and there's other people around, it's super easy to trip on the wires or mm -hmm. get into a place where something stupid happens. So... It's just, it's just nice to have. And I think everyone realizes that and everyone's working towards it. Yeah, so I, the other big trend we're seeing right now is the standalone headset. So Oculus announced their next headset's going to be the Oculus Go, which was originally supposed to come out like February of 2018. We don't know when it's going to come out exactly. But that's a $200 fully standalone headset. So, I mean, the specs are not nearly on the level of Rift. And it's not really for gaming. It's well, it is, but it's more for kind of a so multimedia experience. So it's comparable to one of the more phone-based devices. Yeah, it's like you're getting a phone-based device, but you don't need your phone. It's a purely in-house um, processor and everything. Um, and then kind of the next tier from that is the Oculus Santa Cruz. This is something that they've been teasing since I think late 2016. Uh, they've been talking about it for a while. And this is a more mid-level, totally internal headset, um, which unlike the Oculus Go has full positional tracking. It has, and a really important thing called inside-out tracking. So instead of basically having nodes that are being seen either in the headset or in your room, it's using external cameras that are looking at your environment and through basically creating spatial mapping on your environment, determining where you're looking. So you don't need any external stuff. 100% of your tracking is happening on the headset, as well as where your controllers currently are. So that's a huge thing. I mean... So why is this a big deal? So this, I mean, this is a big deal because... This, this will be the first instance in which every single thing that you need to fully experience a room scale experience is just the headset and the controllers. There's no other instance where that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't need to set up anything. I mean, yeah. So you need to set up, you need to scan your environment so it can properly kind of track where you are looking. Yeah, but there's but, no physical devices. that you Exactly. Have. So, I mean, the, the amount of time for setup and the limitations that you get from currently being tethered to a computer, I mean, that's all out the window. But I guess now, I mean, now that we've gone over where headsets are going, I think the hindrance is even if you do have that freedom, the question is where can VR go when it completely obscures vision? Like it has a ton of, ex like specifically in gaming, what I found is since I've had my Vive, basically every game I play, I wish had a VR experience. I think it truly is transformative. And I think really once we get a tetherless experience and we get a higher resolution experience, we're there. It's going to be a huge thing, especially once people can actually afford it. But outside of gaming, like, what do you see as the potential for VR? I think that VR has a lot of implications in sort of other experiential matters. Mm -hmm. So a, this might kind of be similar to video games. One thing that I can definitely see is sort of arenas or sort of other sort of entertainment purposes. So imagine something like going to paintball or, or doing something. Yeah. Like, top like a modern, a modern version like of laser tag where yeah. you have a group of 10 people who go into kind of an empty room 
they yeah. they have a selection of a certain number of experiences and they can experience them all in one place exactly or like even like an escape room you could potentially do that mm -hmm. or augment it with vr and have a really cool experience there yeah and i think that there's sort of other things related to this right so a movie theater uh, in, in other items. In addition to that, I think that this has a lot of uses in training and, and um, sort of practice purposes. Yeah, so like the place that we've seen VR happen since the 90s, like if it comes to like military training or that kind of thing. I think yeah. in education as well, there's a ton of potential. If you want to like give children, well, I mean, obviously there's like things like touring the world and having that kind of experience. But I think job training like getting getting to have kind of a first person experience of potential careers could be a really really valuable thing for people who are indecisive about that kind of thing yeah. personally yeah and i actually have a background because i literally made an animation about that like five years ago yeah. for first robotics so that's something that i'm enthusiastic about for the yeah. future but yeah i mean i think you know the hindrance of both not being basically obscuring your view when you're using vr and and the difficulty in properly marketing it. I, I think outside of either internal business potential or gaming, it's hard to see it really breaking into the mainstream in a in, in a powerful way. I agree. I think that um, VR is going to be akin to uh, kind of building out your own home theater setup, mm -hmm. right? Like it's not going to be something that everyone does. It's going to be something that, that will require the room and the space in sort of the the knowledge and the hype to, to be able to do this just like uh there are certain people who will go out of their way and build you know like a kick-ass uh basement and have everything set up or have this sort yeah, of experience you can have an empty room and you put it on that headset and you're all good yeah and yeah i mean once once resolution and sound quality on internal headphones is up i mean that's definitely a viable thing yeah. outside of gaming just kind of any kind of entertainment suite and center inside of a house yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, when it comes to interaction with people, I mean, that's really what Mark Zuckerberg seems to be talking about. Like whenever he demos this, it's people interacting, it's people doing business meetings, it's them in VR spaces where they can interact with virtual objects. And, you know, he, I think a lot of people say the difference between like VR and film or something is instead of sharing, sharing a thing, you're sharing like an experience of someone. Um, it's it's just a much more visceral thing because your body is directly involved with it, so I I can see that how that will heighten like general communication between people, but personally I've always been skeptical as to how many people are really gonna want that, you know like there's a very evident anti-technology push by a lot of people these days like if they see an instance where technology is not absolutely vital I mean obviously you need a computer and you need a phone those are intrinsic in, in daily life. But really anything outside of that, like embellishments in tech, I think a lot of people, you know, try, try to stay away from. So I wonder, you know, is VR ever going to be ubiquitous as a social platform? So I think that one of the futures that Facebook really tries to demo is everyone meets up in sort of like this sort of social square. With these really creepy avatars. Out. Like, I don't, oh I don't, God. I don't, I'm skeptical of that happening. Who really wants to, and also... If if you want to demo that, don't get Mark Zuckerberg to demo it. I don't want to go into a three D environment, especially the way the one that they did recently was they were like going through South America after like devastating hurricanes, and they're like, oh, we can look at the damage. Oh wow, there's a there's a lot of damage. Oh wow, you know you can really get these firsthand experience. They were like walking through like a third world Vice documentary, acting like this was this incredible experience. I'm like, I don't. 
I don't see that as an attractive thing to a lot of people. And I mean, Facebook I mean, got a lot of flack for doing that. Like, yeah. Like people thought it was very reductive. <laughs> and I, I agree. I think that a lot of times if you're, if you're trying to build empathy for experiences or anything that happens, you have to be very careful in the way that you go about doing it. Because a lot of times simply spending a minute or two in someone else's life or someone else's uh, world doesn't necessarily mean that you, you now fully have that understanding mm -hmm. and you don't want to bring that same sort of arrogance with VR mm -hmm. and Facebook was kind of caught doing that. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be an interesting thing to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I really just, yeah. I, I see gaming gaming being you know transformed by VR. Uh, another instance where, I mean, a lot of purist gamers are not going to want to get into this. And there's always going to be people who want to play Dota and League of Legends and all those classic games on a screen. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Yeah. The same way paper and pencil are still a thing. Like, people still play chess. They're still going to play the classic games, you know. Yeah. But I think VR will have a significant enough player base that we'll be seeing AAA studios making more games that aren't just pure ports. I think we're going to finally see some, you know, pure experiences built from the ground up for VR, which we haven't really seen yet. Yeah, and I think one one of the things that you'll usually find is that when new platforms come about, there is typically a certain period of time, um, and it, it's usually not very uniform, so it really depends on what the platform is, mm -hmm. where people have figure figure things out. They figure out what the dominant player is. They figure out how experiences are crafted. And, and based on those facts, they then start building out uh, creative and amazing apps that would only happen if that platform had, had existed. For example, Uber did not come out right when the iPhone came out. It took a few years for... Uh, mobile phones to really get to the place where Uber was a viable product and it became this amazing social network. And at the end of the day, something like Uber would not have existed if it was not for the phone. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a few years, you're going to start seeing, excuse me, similar experiences. They might not be as transformative as something as Uber or anything like that, but you will start to see those similar experiences that can only happen on a VR headset. Yeah. And in addition to that, one thing that I wanted to bring up too is I think that while social networks or anything like this will not be particularly effective with VR, I think that you, you might be able to see collaborative, collaborative work mm -hmm. be very, very powerful on VR. Yeah, I mean, A that... lot of remote meetings could potentially be done over VR and you can imagine having, uh, you know, like a, a task list or a board that you can physically... Uh, organize because you're in a VR space versus uh, having to do something over the web. Yeah, I mean, virtual desktop is kind of the current main VR setup that people use for their own desktops. And yeah, I mean, there are a lot of remote workers who just for fun will, will spend entire workdays inside of a VR headset. And it's surprisingly functional. Yeah. People, people can basically work, you know, the same way they would in a traditional office environment in VR. Um, I think the biggest hindrance right now is just the resolution of screens. It's hard to read text properly. But once, I mean, once Pimax, and we'll iterate on that, we'll be there very quickly, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, kind of in-person collaboration, kind of just, just accountability of people. When you can actually see someone there, I think it's it's a lot harder to kind of avoid work than if you're just sending a Slack message and then disappearing for a while, I think. Yeah, I, I can see basically just VR workplaces being a thing, yeah. especially for just... Those, those Wild West companies that want to try it out. Like, I could see a lot of startups 
that, that are that are doing remote work just wanting to try it out as kind of an experiment yeah and i predict that it would actually be quite effective i mean it's not something everyone would want to do 100 percent of the time one, one thing is we don't i mean i don't know if we really know the science of how much this is going to be damaging people's eyesight in the future but i definitely see potential basically i mean there's a lot of studies out there that talk about sort of depth perception depth perception and um just how people interact with vr Mm -hmm. and a lot of a lot of the results aren't as promising as people would expect in the sense that for example um right now if you're trying to uh judge depth so if you think that something is five feet away um you can you can judge something like that uh in, in the real world, but if you hypothetically play something five feet away in VR, it's much harder to judge what that is. And, and these sorts of perceptional problems are going to really uh, cause issues and implicate exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. Cool. You want to go on to augmented reality? Yeah. Let's talk about AR. That. Yeah. So, I mean, in AR, I think when it comes to the history of AR really quickly... There's a lot of parody there with what's what's been happening in VR. So I mean, ARs existed since the 1990s, um, and I think one of the one of the first instances where we saw AR being really really beneficial was factory workers, people who are doing work, you know, com- you know, work that is high skilled, and that there's basically a lot of stuff they need to keep track of at one time, but it's not changing significantly day to day. So if you have basically a heads up display or some way, you can either augment things by putting objects over your field of view, or you can basically be playing some kind of tutorial or giving you kind of a bulletin board list or something like that. Like that can really, I mean, it's been found to increase the effectiveness and efficiency of workers a ton. So that's something that I think Boeing was using back in the 1990s. Um, The US Air Force has been using it since the 90s, a lot of things. And then if you want an equivalent to Virtual Boy, kind of that first delve into AR as as a consumer public good, I think you can just look to um, you can just look to the Google Glass back in 2014. Mm-hmm. You know when that first came out. I remember when when they first released that video on YouTube. Everyone was completely psyched, or at least everyone I knew was was really really really. I think people were either people were either psyched or they immediately brought up the security implications <laughs> of having a camera on you at all times. That's fair. That's fair. It was either one or the other. People thought it was cool, or they they thought that you were being a creep with the camera on your face because like. I think I think one thing really important about VR that we can talk about immediately is it's just a lot easier to market. You can talk about a heads-up display in VR, and you can immediately anyone yeah. AR can can look at that and immediately understand how it's going to be transformative. Whereas VR, you know, there's 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 kind of a wall between you and understanding the experience. So back in 2014, you know, a VR headset was not available to the public yet, but you see just this one-minute video of a guy walking around answering phone calls, reading his email on his glass. And I mean, this was like a really futurist kind of landmark event, I feel like. A lot of people, I mean, this thing had tens of millions of views. Everyone was really, really anticipating it. And then to put it quickly, it, you know, did not capture people when it when it eventually did become released. Part of it was that the amount of apps that were available at the start really didn't live up to that original video. Um, I think yeah. the experience with actually just using the hardware device was not so great. Mm-hmm. The uh, actual Google Glass. Um, so how it works is there is sort of a um, a small kind of rectangular section that rested up against your skull. 
uh, on your right side, I think. It's either right or left. I can't remember anymore. Mm -hmm. And that contained, like, the battery, the the CPU and GPU or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Whatever it was needed to make the thing operate. And then there was the actual display. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this is every time the actual – you you actually put the thing to use, the battery would heat up. So, like, the side (laughs) of your skull would get really hot. In in addition to that, yeah. Did you ever actually use them? So I used I I used Google Glass maybe four or five times. Okay. It was always pretty cool, but at the same time, every time I used it it was really warm, Mm -hmm. which made it was which which personally made me a little bit uncomfortable. I would not want to wear this for a long period of time Mm -hmm. if it was going to be very hot. In addition to that, the battery life was really bad from what I've heard. So it, it, this was definitely something a, you're gonna be wearing all day. That's, yeah, that's a deal breaker. This yeah. is definitely this was definitely a development dev kit type device. It was not something that was meant for the the market, and I think as a result, it failed because people expected it to be a market ready device. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for reference, in 2014, people say it was about 800,000 units sold, which isn't terrible, but for I mean that's the, a lot for, for the yeah for, for the a amount development of hype device that was going into this. Yeah, it doesn't sound like much. But yeah. when I read that number, it doesn't seem like from Google's standpoint. I doubt they really expected much from it. It really was just putting it in the wild and using people as a beta test to see you know how do we iterate on this? How how do we make sure that when technology is ready for this, mm-hmm. we're the first ones and we have everything ready. I mean, and we understand. Not only the technology, but the consumer and what they want yeah. so that we can tailor the technology to them. Yeah. And I mean, Google Glass did come back. So right now, Google Glass did a relaunch of, I don't know when they did it. Um, Sometime but, in 2017. Yeah. In it 2017, out. it came back out. And it's being exclusively used in industrial settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's used a lot to oper- operationalize information mm-hmm. in the sense that if you have something that uh, you need to know right now, it will show it to you in the heads up display. So if you're a factory worker who's working on a very specific piece in the assembly line, you might potentially view instructions on how to assemble that piece or uh, any further instructions or information that you might need. And it's actually very, very valuable and effective in that area. And it's actually doing really great as a product that's only in that space, not necessarily something consumer. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a couple of local companies here in the D.C. area that specialize specifically on Google Glass, basically developing software for people who work in warehouses and work in that kind of business environment. And I mean, yeah, like I said, you know, you can have videos playing. You can basically use the first-person experience to share your view with, with an expert so they can kind of give you direct, you know, background and tell you how to do whatever you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's tons of potential in that area. Yeah, I mean, imagine a surgeon wearing Google Glass and yeah. using this to aid uh, their experience. I think that... Eventually, we're, the, the, this idea of computer-aided humans is going to uh, get even crazier and even more awesome. And AR is one step to uh, making that happen. And it's going to be one very important step to making that happen. Uh, computers are very good at, at doing uh, sort of complex menial tasks, whereas humans are very good at dealing with... Um, sort of dealing with ambiguity and we need to find a great way to enable both to be effective at what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about medical stuff, I took a class in college that was augmented reality, very much focused on medical things. And I mean, when it comes to invasive surgery or really any, anything like that, it's, I mean, AR has already been used 
to some capacity for over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, we're not talking about heads of displays all that much. That's really more in a research environment. But if you're talking about basically taking a scan of someone's you know anatomy and then overlaying that with you know a live video feed of you know the person operating, and you have some kind of tracker on the instrument that you're using when it comes to invasive surgery, it's really you know it it tells you it tremendously changes kind of operations and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then I think in the future when it comes to diagnosis and that kind of thing, you know, if you have a really, really sophisticated computer vision algorithm that can basically take your first person perspective and say, from whatever rash or something that someone has, I can immediately kind of infer what they have, what symptoms they're showing and what they need to be prescribed as well as, you know, once again, like giving a first person perspective for someone more qualified, you could call in someone who knows exactly what this is and they could immediately kind of prescribe something or give a diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, uh, even adding on top of that, uh, one of the most interesting papers I've read in the last three to six months is that um, there's a bunch of researchers who uh, created a machine learning alg algorithm and found out that there there's slight things that change in your face. So like very, very slight uh, expressions, the way that your eyes um, curl up or, or the way that your nose swells, that's actually indicative of if you have the flu or not. So imagine mm -hmm. using AR or being able to use some of these glasses to predict that someone has the flu, you know, a week before they have it, and you can actually still give them the flu vaccine and it would be effective. Yeah. And I mean, just imagine the potential of that kind of facial recognition in other areas. I mean, when it comes to sentiment analysis, if you're giving a speech, you could basically gauge, you know, the engagement that you're getting of the people you're talking to. Um, if you have people who have trouble empathizing with other people or understanding emotions, you could basically have you know, a way, a heads-up display that allows them to, you know, study and internalize and understand those emotions when they're talking to someone else. When it comes to accessibility, you can have basically, if someone is deaf or someone is blind, you could say, you know, you could either have it basically telling you what is around them when they ask, you know, say, what is directly in front of me at the moment, use computer vision algorithms, and then basically, you know, tell the person audibly what they're seeing, or vice versa. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the potential in those areas, and then like in law enforcement, when it comes to sentiment analysis, when it comes to camera systems and that kind of thing, I mean, we, we could be, if anyone has ever watched Psychopaths, if you watch anime, we could have crime coefficients for everyone walking around. I have no idea. It's a good show. About what you're talking it's a about. Production IG, it's a good show. So just shouting out. All right. Psychopaths. Cool, dude. Is that, is that <laughs> going to be our sponsor? Sponsored by Psychopaths? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, copyright's pretty tough over by, there in Japan. I don't know. I think we can sponsor by a show that's already over. Well, it's not. Well, there's been a second season in a movie. I don't know if it's totally okay. over. Anyway, really quick. I mean, I talked about how Google Glass is kind of the equivalent in some ways of that first iteration of public things. But now we're really seeing that second wave. The same that we saw Oculus Rift and HTC Vive and all that stuff with the HoloLens. I mean, that's really what ushered in this next generation of AR devices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is once again, purely a research device at the moment. I think when, when you know, Microsoft's head of, of that division was asked how they sold, he's like, in the thousands, not tens of thousands or something to that effect. You know, it hasn't sold that much. But I mean, I think everyone who's used it, despite a very limited field of view, I mean, the actual area in which you are seeing an automated display is very, very limited. Mm -hmm. um, the potential that you can kind of gauge beyond that is is tremendous. Yeah, uh, I've used the HoloLens twice, and it's one of the coolest devices I've used in the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that it actually goes beyond 
just the augmented reality portion of it. I think it goes into sort of the room tracking and the facial tracking aspects of it. So uh, one of the coolest parts about uh, using the HoloLens is the fact that um, it, it uses um, room tracking and facial tracking to be able to, um, you know, potentially one, place objects mm-hmm. in different rooms. It actually understands where you are and what the things are in your yeah, room. Yeah, I mean, not only does it have spatial mapping, but it, it can understand occlusion of different objects. I mean, it can really seem immersive. Yeah, absolutely. Way. So uh, one of the things that we were doing uh, with the Oculus Rift that we had in, in this research lab is that um, you could actually place different objects in different rooms. So people would place, um, like... Uh, creepy clowns in a room so that way when you open the door you'd actually see this creepy clown in this dark room and it would scare the crap out of people truly a life-changing technology yeah it it was or you could put like a a fake car in your garage right so (laughs) if you can't afford a tesla you can put a tesla in your garage when it comes to dumb applications like in my class every other person for their final project did some kind of medical application Mm -hmm. and i literally just made rocket league we call it a hollow league it was a rocket league and augmented reality and it was awesome that's so awesome. That's the future. Yeah. It's definitely the future. And yeah, I mean, so HoloLens is really the beginning of the second wave, but we're seeing a lot of companies of getting into it. I think one that was a funny thing for a lot of people was Magic Leap. This was kind of a an Iron Curtain kind of company mm. in the sense that they were amassing. I mean, people knew they were, they were amassing over $2 billion in, in funding. And they got really big investors. It's not like they yeah. were... They were getting dumb money. They were actually getting money from like Google Ventures and a lot of other very prestigious yeah. investment partners. And they were, I mean, for years, they were totally cryptic about what they were doing. I mean, people could infer that it was some kind of AR headset. But beyond that, no one really knew what the technology was. So very recently, um, they announced the Magic Leap 1. I think that was in December of 2017. They first reported on it. Um, and, it, you know, it, it is basically a, a competitor of the HoloLens in a lot of ways. It is a set of... Yeah, a set of AR goggles for everything that that can mean, you know, a first generation of that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they've had a lot of focus in spatial mapping and understanding depth and inclusion and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think AR, not not only having kind of the same display, I mean, the display of AR is similar to VR in that you're basically using goggles and you're projecting an image on a translucent display that's in front of your eyes. That's generally what people use it for. Um, but I think software is really what's going to make a difference in AR, more so than in VR, because you're interacting with the real world. You need to be so be able to create a scatter map that creates a, you know, a not only a very accurate 3D map of your environment, but it needs to be able to do it incredibly quickly. If you're walking around every day and you're looking at anything new, it needs to be able to almost instantaneously understand the spatial mapping of what you're looking at. Um, yeah, and I think this brings up one of my biggest... Um, fears with AR and VR in general, when you have to be able to adapt and be able to recognize all of these different things, it also means that there's a risk that all of these systems will make very large scale assumptions about your space. Mm -hmm. And that could cause potential implications in the future. Like what? So that's a good question. I think that um, right now there's a lot of privacy concerns with uh, having, know, having a full 3D model of your entire house. Yeah, exactly. And if uh, imagine ads advertisements were displaced or displayed based on what you had around you, or even um, in order to use certain products or use certain services, 
they had to scan your room first to figure out what you actually had or liked. <laughs> and I know this sounds a little ridiculous, but this that's, this could totally happen. I mean, that's what you need if you want it to work. Yeah. And the way that people expect. I mean, if you want to have that, you know, truly immersive environment where it really feels like it's interacting with everything around you, that means they need to have a 3D model of absolutely everything in your house. That's the only way it's going to happen. So Yeah. And going back to the assumption side, um, imagine someone uh, is using uh, these devices to uh, as part of their jobs, right? Like going back to this idea of a surgeon using a an AR app to be able to perform surgery. Imagine if the AR app got uh, some of the depth perception wrong and made a fatal mistake in the surgery. That's totally something that could happen in the future if we're starting to depend on these products to help make these very, very important decisions. Yeah. And I mean, I the assumptions made by these products are going to be a problem. Yeah. I mean, especially in like high risk things like medical. I mean, we, when you look at the amount of regulations it takes to take a, a surgical robot and be able to use that in surgeries, I mean, the amount of testing and documentation, it takes over a decade from finishing the technology to having it basically being used in in an operation space. Yeah. And it's going to be the same thing here. So I, I'm not too worried about... Maybe that's... The- tremendous, like, technological problems causing, like, botched surgeries. I don't think that will be happening, but it's... Well, I mean, that- there's going to be a tremendous amount of time it takes to verify that it's safe, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that you're right that there's going to be a lot of regulation around this in, in regulated environments like hospitals, but that still doesn't reduce any of the potential risk for this mm-hmm. in the sense that I don't think that a lot of governmental agencies or anything like that know how to deal with technology in general. <laughs> I think that, I mean, they're... If we want an example of them not understanding technology, I mean, just look at Mark Zuckerberg's testimonial of the past couple of days. I mean, most of the people bad. in Congress do not know what Facebook is. They do not understand how data is used. It's... yeah. I don't think they understand how they don't understand flows. the business. They some of them don't understand like an ad-based business model. I mean, this is yeah, this is scary stuff. And these are the people that are deciding all of the laws about these sort of subjects, which is a little scary. That's why you got Elon Musk coming in and being like, "Hey guys, we don't have as much time as you think. I mean, we need to enact some kind of legislation about either virtual, you know, augmented reality, or you know, when it comes to artificial intelligence, you know, like." We really need to have some ideological standing on these things because they're going to blow up in our face very quickly. And if we don't really have a set of tools to deal with them when it, when it comes, we don't know what can happen Yeah. without regulation. I 100% agree. And then, I mean, just looking at AR's accessibility in the future, I mean, HoloLens, this is multiple thousands of dollars. And I would assume Magic Leap is going to be very expensive as well. Magic Leap actually... Um, all of the onboard computing is using basically a puck that you would place either in your pocket or, you know, clip to your belt outside of the headset. But then if you want an example of a standalone headset that's very cheap, uh, Leap Motion, which is a company that exists in the aerospace and VR space for a long time. Um, prior to this, they've really focused on hand recognition, basically gestures, hand recognition, that kind of thing. Um, they, they've now announced their own thing. It's called Project Northstar, and it's a sub $100 manufactured headset that it is an air set, but it primarily does focus on hand gestures and recognition. You know, we're not seeing the same level of software when it comes to full-scale room, um, spatial mapping, that kind of thing. But, I mean, for $100, it's tremendous that we have anything in this space. And it shows that, I mean, in less time than a lot of people probably expect, 
we're going to have a consumer ready model that you know it, it's it's obviously not going to have the potential that we we think many years into the future there's going to be but there will be enough application that people who haven't engaged with this technology before are going to want it i mean hand gestures are cool like it's that it, it's a very very effective marketing push when when you feel like tony stark and when you feel like your actor you know if, as long as you have a headset where you have some kind of augmented panel in front of you and you can basically make gestures to move yeah. it around and manipulate it, that's enough to entice a lot of people. Yeah, I, I mean, it's either this or you're going to have to have a controller with you. Mm-hmm. So unless you think that controllers are the future of VR and AR, this is the this is what you're going to have to do. Is you're going to have to have a really good gesture-based uh, recognition system. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, like gesture-based gaming was something that was like completely scoffed at back in 2006 when Nintendo kind of ushered it in with the Wii. But now, I mean, once once it's in VR, it's transformative. I mean, no one is is arguing about full-scale motion tracking for gaming now. Yeah. And it's going to translate just into AR. I mean, I think gesture-based and, you know, we're seeing a huge surge of, you know, voice interfaces, conversational interfaces. And that's you know, all of the technology can feed directly into AR systems in a really, really transformative way. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would ask, since for Future Vision, what do you think is the most interesting thing we're going to see AR doing in the next decade? For you personally, and I guess, what do you think will be just the most important on a societal level? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. For or, So let, let's, let me answer both of these questions. So for me personally, I think that augmented reality is going to have really, really cool games. Uh, I was a huge fan of Pokemon Go when it first came out. I think everyone was that summer. That summer, everyone went out and played outside. That first weekend. Yeah. <laughs> that was, was really cool. I don't know beyond that. I, 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 it was really great because I met so many people in my own neighborhood that I've never talked to in my entire life. And never have since. Yeah. It was a, <laughs> but still. Pretty much, yeah. But it was a cool way to bring people together. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity to create experiences that are similar to that, to start bringing in, uh, bringing communities together. Yeah, I mean, it's important to mention that AR isn't only kind of these heads-up displays. I mean, if, if, if you've used a Snapchat filter or an Instagram filter, I mean, that is AR. Basically, yeah. any time in which you're augmented reality with any kind of virtual object... So, I mean, when we talk about current adoption rates, over a billion people have used AR already in some capacity. Yeah. And I think that the second question that you asked, right, like what is going to be a big societal change as a result of AR? Mm-hmm. I think that's one of those things that we can't really know the answer to. And going back to the Uber example, I don't think anyone right when the iPhone came out could you have gotta, said... You got to try, though. No, but but that's I don't think anybody could have tried. And that's okay. It's okay if you're wrong, Janth. No one's going to listen to this. You're okay. You can say whatever you want. I'm not going to be wrong. All right, then what do you think it's going to be? You can't give me a non-answer. It's not a non-answer. I think I'm just saying that I, I literally don't know. Okay. I won't say what's the most impactful, because, I mean, that's a very lofty question. Yeah. What do you think will be the coolest thing that we'll see in 10 years? I think that, again, going back to this idea of assumptions, I think that you're going to see a lot more predictive experiences that just work for you and i think that's going to be kind of cool 
So you walk into uh, a bar and there's a music playing and it automatically just shows up on your heads up display. So you know what it is. Yeah. Like a modern Shazam something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I I was reading over a lot of lists that are like a hundred future, you know, things that air is going to be used for. And what really struck me is, I mean, it's, it's incredibly impressive and really, really inspiring to read through these, but the vast majority of them could already exist in some capacity with your smartphone. And they probably already do. Yeah. But the thing is, while the technology is there to make them exist, the accessibility that comes with an air headset, the fact that that's not here yet, is really what's holding them back. Mm-hmm. Like I was reading, some of them were like food and restaurants. You know, you can walk into a restaurant and you can you can look at foods and it can give you like an allergy flag. You know, you look at a particular food, you look at peanuts, it says you can't eat these. Or you're at your house and you look over like what's currently in your pantry and it can automatically say like here are available dietary options for you. Or, you know, you can look at a particular meal and it can give you kind of a calorie estimation. Mm-hmm. None of that is impossible now. I mean, you can hold up your phone, but the fact is there's just that certain level of distance and like having to take your phone out, having to start the app up. If you have a constant experience that's happening in a heads-up display, it really, there's a lot of apps that could already exist that are being transformed by that. I think another really exa- important example, I think something that is going to be really influential is um, when it comes to communication. If you're speaking with someone in a foreign language, you can basically have a live heads-up display of their translation going by in your head. So, I mean, yeah, right now you could hold your phone up or your computer up and you could basically read what they're saying, you know, turn away from them, see what they're saying, and then respond to it justly. Mm -hmm. If you have a live display, you can basically maintain eye contact and then in your periphery see what they're saying. Like, that can fundamentally change the way that people in different languages can speak with each other. Like, that's really, really important. So your thought is that if you can bring some of the stuff up on your phone to eye level, it's going to change the interaction and the way that you actually use some of these experiences. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the technology outside of the display is already there. Um, I mean, I I think I'm someone who's very pessimistic when it comes to new form factors of technology. Like, Mm -hmm. when tablets were, were first announced, I was like, what is the point of this? I just really was, I struggled to understand tablets. And now they're kind of on their way out, and I they're not I don't miss them. Out. They're on their way out. They're not. Tablets are out. not near. I mean, like we said, low-level tablets are gone. Because no, the other way around. Low-level tablets are in. What? Yeah. Why just use your phone? A lot of people will buy a cheap tablet. You're talking like a Fire, t- like the $50 yeah. Fire. Yeah, exactly. Like those things are definitely used for like entertainment. And if uh. you look iPad sales went up like a be. significant amount once they launched their cheap just just use your laptop. You're iPad. in your house. Just pull your laptop off. Like, yeah, but I, I just don't. If you're just trying this to watch is for Netflix, another time, but I can't comprehend. You tablets. just watch Netflix. You can watch it on a fifty dollar thing. And tablets are call it a day. Yeah, but that's like seven twenty p or worse. It looks terrible. My I mom mean, went on a trip and she took all the pictures on her freaking fifty dollar Fire tablet. Yeah, people do they that. They look like mud. They're disgusting. Yeah, I hate it. We've gone. We've regressed as society because of tablets. I hate tablets. I think you just hate tablets. I don't like tablets, but I really like. And that speaks to the fact that I'm I'm very resistant to these kind of things. And another instance is when it comes to smartwatches. You know, yes, there is some benefit that comes to taking the form factor and moving it outside of your pocket. I mean, it does make it more accessible. They're good fitness Um, trackers. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to fitness trackers, I mean, that's one clear thing where the form factor being on your wrist is a transformative thing because when it comes to pulse, when it comes to yeah, like tracking your steps, it's more accurate in that sense. Mm-hmm. But I think outside of that, we've seen that while there is some adoption of smartwatches, it's not it's not a transformative technology. But I think that's okay. I think that 
smartwatches are marketed as accessories and that's what they're supposed to be. So if you're expecting it to replace your phone, then yeah, of course it's going to fail. Yeah. There's not enough real estate. There's not enough. I'm not saying that smartwatches. What I'm saying is AR, I think really is a level above that. Okay. You know, this is not just a new form factor. This is a fundamentally different type of interaction. Yeah. And the way that a smartwatch is a new form factor of a smartphone based interaction is a touchscreen in which, you know, it's a physical object that's not in front of your eyes that you need to at least glance at to interact with. Whereas AR displays, I mean, having having basically no degree of separation between you and the experience is what's going to take a lot of pre-existing technology and just reinvent it for people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think so. Yeah. Cool I stuff, think it'll man. be cool. I think it'll be cool. Cool, dude. I mean You did it. You 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 said AR things. I yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean Let's talk about a couple other cool AR things. Alright. I mean, just just imagine. Just imagine, dude. Yeah. I don't know. Let, let's look through my list. What's what's cool here? What's I cool? think that you could anything branded in AR is is probably gonna succeed for a little while. Just like how Pokemon Go succeeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Niantic, the company that, that was buying that, they're doing a Harry Potter thing now. Yeah, that's, that's coming up. And mm-hmm. that's going to be a big deal when that comes out. Yeah. People are going to be hyped. I mean, I'm like scoffing at it right now, but I'm totally going to play it as soon as it comes out. So I'm not even hating. <laughs> well, another kind of scary thing, I mean, when you think about advertising. Yeah. Basically buying virtual space. Because, I mean, in augmented reality, while it's a virtual space, it is mapped to reality in some sense you're, you're really just doubling the footprint of the earth in a lot of ways i mean th- so, this was a big deal in in, in pokemon go yeah where uh so in pokemon go they had these things called pokey stops mm-hmm. where you could uh refresh and get additional items uh so that way you could play the game further and a lot of po- pokey stops are actually like literal physical locations they were usually tied to geographic markers like parks but what happened is every time a Pokestop was an actual business, people would actually go there a significant amount more and people found out that it actually influenced foot traffic. So what ended up happening is businesses tried to convert themselves into Pokestops to start bringing people in. There's literally a Sprint store adjacent to where I work and they still have like a sticker saying they're Pokestop. Yeah. It's a Sprint store. Yeah. I mean, Yelp, the app... Mm-hmm. Yelp has a filter that lets you search by Pokestops. Really? Yeah. Holy shit. So you can find restaurants that. That's crazy. that are only Pokestops. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, basically, like, you're, you're doubling the footprint of advertising. Like, imagine, basically, people are going to buy ad space in a different reality. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's still going to be, you know, basically, it's going to be hard to avoid advertisement is what I'm saying. Yeah. That's going to be a hard regulation. Another one is, I mean, when we talk about eye tracking, that's something that's going to be used in a lot of AR things, you know, people are obviously going to want to regulate it. Yeah. But having that level of personalization and Imagine yeah. imagine your YouTube ads pause because you're not looking at them and then they unpause That's cause, terrifying. Because you're looking back. That's it's gonna happen. That's the most dystopian thing I've ever heard of. I mean you're saying that, but that already kinda happened. So like in Spotify if you like minimize or something like I can't remember exactly. If you what turn it is. the volume off it stops. Yeah, if you turn the volume off it stops. Like it's already kinda doing the same thing. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so I mean the personalization and advertising that comes from AR, you know, that's that's going to be I mean that's clearly going to happen. It's it's relatively unavoidable, especially when 
as a society, we've moved so much towards free-to-play and free-to-experience things mm-hmm. and kind of fishing after those those whales or those people who are going to either buy into a platform or, you know, advertising. And I think overall we're seeing advertising become a less lucrative area for a lot of companies. A lot of people are moving in different directions, either subscription bases or other things. So the question is, will this revitalize the traditional ad in a virtual space? I mean, I disagree with you. I think that a lot more people are actually moving towards freemium and uh, ad-based models. Yeah. And I think that this is... Well... No, you were saying the opposite. You well, were saying that people are moving away from it. Kind of. Yeah. In the game space, it's different. Then, in the game space, people are totally moving towards that. Look, like, look at Fortnite and look at all these other things. Yeah, but those aren't ads. I mean, those are basically like in-game purchases. Loot things. boxes and yeah, stuff like that. That's that. Yeah, I mean, okay. fair enough. When I say ads, I'm saying like basically, you know, just just either Google AdSense, something that you really need to generate clicks on these ads to to make a profit. Um, you know, the reason Patreon and these other kind of things, which we'll go into in a future episode, like yeah. that's a transformative thing. You're just salty because we don't have ads. Uh, I just got my. Uh, I got my blue apron. Oh yeah, I do blue apron. I got it for free, and then I, just, I canceled immediately after. So, dude, no, we <laughs> maybe we shouldn't ask for that. You shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that one. I think I just lost that one for good. Yeah. Sorry, blue apron. You're too expensive. It's like ten dollars per meal, and I have to make it myself. Just got a fucking sweet green. What's the point? All right. Any any closing thoughts on AR, on the future? It's cool. People are gonna use it more. It's, it's gonna have really interesting ethical implications on the future. Is it going to have the adoption rate and have the basically be like a necessary thing to function in society the same way I would say a smartphone and a, and a computer are? Or do you think those two will still and kind of always be the hallmarks of I think that just AR, existing in society? AR is a feature, not a product. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And it, it, like, like I said, like AR is an enhancement on a lot of pre existing things. And you know, there are obviously a lot of visual applications that can't really exist without it. Um, you know, other things are like, if you want to furnish your home, if you want to like look at, you know, potential things that you could do, if you're working as an architect, like that kind of stuff, video overlay stuff. But once again, that can already exist. You know, you could put your phone up and see it, but you know, having, you know, like I said, having no separation between you and the technology is really transformative. But I think overall it's phones and laptops and that's where it'll always be. I think the smartphone is still going to be the primary device that people use. It's kind of a weird opinion to have on Future Vision to be like, I don't think any other form factor is going to become ubiquitous, but we'll see. I mean, when we look at new stuff, my opinions might change, but I'm a total Scrooge at the moment, so we'll see. I mean, what's the most newest thing that you've bought recently? It was a smartphone, and every single, every time that we've hung out, you always mention how much you like your new smartphone. I like it. Yeah. It's also because I haven't had, I haven't gotten a new one in four years. Yeah. So, so yeah. I like it a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Got a new smartphone, people. Maybe a Pixel. If you're okay with the bezels. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Or get any phone that you would like. Yeah, honestly, they're all, they're all fine. At this they're point. all good. They, there really isn't a bad phone anymore. That anyone All you're going to do is go on Facebook and Snapchat anyways. It's not like you're missing out. <laughs> All right. All right. I would say that concludes episode two. Deuces. Of Future Vision. Guys, thank you. I mean, we're we're going to keep going. Yeah. We're going to keep going. Like I said, the second is the most important. You this make it sound like, establish... like I'm forcing you to keep doing this. <laughs> I am not forcing you to do this. 
like I said, second is most important. You got to establish that pattern. Spider-Man this, this Two it starts. And next episode is Spider-Man. And our three. pattern is up. We got we got microphones. What's what's next time, man? Maybe we'll have remote calling. You know, something, yeah. something crazy. Spider-Man Three. I don't know if I want. I don't know if I want Spider-Man Three. No one wanted Spider-Man Three. That was the problem. I think Tobey Maguire is hilarious. And I think the sequence where he is taken over by Venom is one of the greatest cinematic experiences of all time. And I I think everyone secretly agrees. Because, I mean, it's a meme masterpiece watching him do that little, like, twirl and spin. Yeah. That snap. Yeah. Fucking amazing. I love you, Toby Boyer. Where are you?